1: But we begin our program today with an announcement yesterday by the provincial government with respect to those third-party food delivery services and the fees they charge. Here's Minister Mike Farnworth.
0: And today I'm pleased to announce that through a ministerial order under the Emergency Programme Act, we are enacting a temporary cap on fees charged to restaurants by food delivery companies. Effective December 27th, the delivery fees will be capped to 15% providing immediate relief for struggling restaurants and cafes. The order includes an additional cap of 5% for other related fees, such as payment processing and online ordering fees, to ensure that delivery costs will not be shifted to other
1: fees for restaurants using these services. That's Mike Farnworth. When then, of course, was asked, well, what about the drivers? Is this going to come out of their pay packets?
0: We have also added provisions to protect the drivers, to make sure that they're retaining their regular wages and gratuities.
1: Okay, so those are the two important parts of the minister's announcement, and he did go on at length. Uh, but to react to all of this today, we're delighted to welcome Mark Von Shelwitz back to the program. Mark is Vice President, Western Canada, with Restaurants Canada. Mark, good morning and welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you with us again, Mark. Uh, you paid very close attention to Mr. Farnworth's remarks yesterday. What was your take?
2: Uh, certainly very much appreciate uh, what the BC government and uh, Minister Farnworth did. This was something that uh, the industry has been increasingly asking for over the last few months as uh, their sales mix has changed, where takeout delivery is now a much more important part of their sales mix. and uh, It was very difficult for them. Uh, you know, It's a market that they feel they have to be in, but uh, they're really just trading dollars and we're making no margin on those sales. So uh, you know, they feel that this has got to be a win-win situation for both those delivery app companies and the restaurateurs, and they were feeling that that just wasn't happening. And uh, we certainly appreciate uh, Minister Farmworth's announcement yesterday. Uh, it will certainly bring a lot of relief to uh, those struggling restaurants that uh, right now are in a worse situation than they were at the end of September with uh, the latest second round of, of COVID restrictions. Yeah, uh, We've heard you know December sales are down anywhere from twenty five to sixty percent uh, and of course December is the most important month for uh, most restauranteurs. It's the month where they usually generate enough cash to get them through the slow winter months that follow so uh you know for our staff and and for our uh, you know it's it's a tough time and uh, yesterday's announcement uh, is certainly uh, very helpful and will ensure that uh, uh, those take-out delivery meals that we can actually get some sort of a margin and uh, certainly appreciate what the government's done following what other jurisdictions have done by capping these fees
1: at 15%. Yeah, let's do the math for those who still don't completely understand why this measure was necessary in BC, and as you point out, Mark, it has been uh, done in, in other jurisdictions as well. So talk to us about with the, how, how the structure works. You go, you you pick up your, your app and you skip the dishes or DoorDash or Uber Eats or one of those third-party delivery services, and you order a burger or whatever it is, and they tell you. You how much it costs. And so you arrange that payment and you don't think about it twice. That's the cost. That's that. How about at the restaurant end? this is where the the math is most important.
2: Yeah. And I guess we have to start Sterling by saying that, you know, we're already a pretty low margin business where our pre-tax sales are in the 5% range. So a lot of, not a lot of margin to play with there. And if you've got these delivery app companies taking 25, 30%, of that sale, it makes it really difficult for the restaurateur to actually make any money off of that. Mm-hmm. The other thing that they're losing with these third-party delivery fees is they're losing their brand awareness because you're ordering from one of those companies, the Skip the Dishes, et cetera, that's right. not ordering from the local restaurant. So still, restaurateurs would prefer that you order directly from them for their takeout and delivery services uh, uh, because then they can actually sell you a meal that's more in line with what you would get as an on-premise customer uh, as opposed to uh, what you're doing with uh, let's Skip the Dishes or or one of these third-party delivery companies. And now I think with this in place, this becomes more of a win-win relationship for, for the delivery companies and the restaurateurs.
1: Indeed. So uh, uh, as far as uh, the, the timing of this event, this all becomes effective on Sunday, the 27th, uh, and, and there's still, I suppose, technically a little bit of time left uh, in the calendar year anyway, Mark, for some restaurants to take advantage of at least the possibility of a few more orders
2: no question and right now the minute you know the industry needs all the help they can get to get through this i mean uh what our members have been telling us sterling is you know in september we had about 45 percent of the industry that was losing money and another 20 percent breaking even That's now gotten a lot worse. We're now 63% of our members Mm. are in that category of losing money and another 22% uh, just breaking even. So we still have only about 20% of the industry that's operating at a profit right now. And, of course, uh, what they're doing now is let's just try and focus on getting through the winter and hopefully with some extra vaccinations that we can start... uh, because ultimately, where they really want to get to is that COVID restrictions start coming off and that and they can get back to some sort of a, a normal business practice. Because it really has been a, a difficult struggle just to, just to keep the lights on over the last few months, and, and especially in the few months coming up here in the winter, which are traditionally the slower times for restaurants.
1: Yeah, January is a tough month for everybody pretty much in retail, and, and that includes uh, the hospitality end of the retail sector too, doesn't it, Mark? Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith on this Wednesday morning, joined on the line by Mark Von Shelwitz, the Restaurants Canada VP for the western part of our country, here to take your calls and comment on the announcement yesterday by the B.C. government on capping delivery service fees. This has uh, clearly been an issue of contention for restaurants. We've been talking about it here on NW, for months. And Mark has been part of that conversation for quite a long time, as has Ian Tostenson locally, too. Uh, so now it's done deal. So what do you make of it? Jason in Vancouver. Good morning.
0: Yes, still Mark. Good morning. Uh, quick question for today. Let's assume a meal costs $30 from somewhere like Cactus Club. Does that imply that the courier company or whomever can only charge up to $6 for that meal? If that's the case, Will they not start seeing people having a reduction of orders, rather than the unwillingness to uh, uh, for the company to say, you know what, here's a cap. I'm not willing to deliver for less than ten dollar delivery, or some such. Mark?
2: Yeah, I guess the answer to that is where this has been put in place before the fifteen percent cap. It really has not resulted in any changes to uh, price to the consumers. Uh, really, what it happens is, uh, you know, now these third party delivery companies are making the similar sort of margins that the restauranteurs were. And before, uh, you know, they were making good margins and the restaurant uh, was making nothing. So this just rebalances it so that's a win-win situation for both. But uh, uh, from our experience, uh, the consumer's not really impacted by this at all.
1: All right, Jason. Thank you for the for, thank you for the call. And, and I think Jason was sort of echoing what I was saying before we took the break, Mark. And the cynics among us are going, "Well, they'll just find a way to to, to get that money back through other charges." But the government, in fact, pointed to the fact that there part of this reduction package includes no other charges.
2: Yeah, no, and that was really, uh, uh, I think, a really smart move to make sure that uh, you know they can't do a little end run by by just increasing fees somewhere else. Sure. So you will notice in the announcement as well that uh, there's a cap as well of five percent on these processing and other fees that that can be charged as well. So um, you know, again, this is uh, I think a really good move that the government's done, and uh, appreciate all the support, uh, not just uh, the government side, but the opposition was supportive of this as well. So. Uh, again, I think this makes this a win-win situation for everybody involved, and uh, and I certainly am not concerned about uh, the third-party delivery companies not being able to to make any profit off these sales with the cap in place.
1: Yeah, it's all they do. Uh, so if, if their profit margin is reduced a little bit, they're still making profit now, aren't they? Unlike most of the restaurant business these days, Mark.
2: Exactly, Sterling. And, and you know, and it's really heartbreaking. There's still uh, you know a lot of restaurants that I talk to that are falling between the gaps of the various uh, support programs that are out there, which, of course, are keeping the whole industry afloat right now. I mean, in B.C., we've maybe lost about 1,500 to 2,000 restaurants. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, But that could have been a lot worse without uh, these supports in place, uh, uh, which the industry is relying on. But uh, unfortunately, because of timing or just when they opened up their business, uh, there's still a lot of members out there that don't qualify. And those are the ones that are, are most at risk right now of, of permanently closing. And, of course, when they close, all their staff uh, lose their jobs as well. And we certainly don't want to see that happen because the industry was so proud to reopen again in May with the new safety protocols. Mm-hmm, and, and patios. And, and, and patios. Yeah, you and bet. It made a big difference. It, it really helped us survive. And, and uh, we certainly appreciate all the restaurant guests that were coming out and. Uh, But uh, we're in a little bit of a different situation now as we're in the second wave and and those slow winter months are are facing us right now. So uh, it's still a tough time. And, uh, you know, we're just hoping that uh, restaurants can get through these next few months. And uh, we don't lose a a bunch of businesses and and certainly appreciate all the supports all levels of government have have put forward to help the industry get through this pandemic.
1: Indeed. Back to the phones. We're in Burnaby this time. Anthony, good morning. Good
2: morning. Good morning. Yeah, I was just uh, wondering, because I heard, uh, I heard some restaurants, actually, uh, not all, I'm sure some are suffering, but I heard some restaurants are, aren't losing money from the apps because they actually, on the app menu, jack the prices up 30%, so that when whoever it is, Uber or DoorDash, take that 30% rake, it's not off them as the restaurant, but to the consumer. But now, if you're a consumer... It's what three dollars every ten dollars. That's thirty percent, right? If you've got a twenty dollar meal, paying an extra six bucks to have the convenience of it getting delivered to your house is not that bad of a deal, is it not? Well and then I think the reason why the the popularity of these third party delivery apps is that convenience. No That's kidding, the convenience factor. And 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 with that, uh, uh, you know, of course, people are willing to pay that premium. Uh, but the thing is, in that order. Uh, what the customer doesn't really see is who's getting what percentage of uh, of the of the sales revenue from that particular sale. And um, so, you know, I think this is going to be here to say, I mean, I think uh, uh, the whole takeout and delivery market, even after the pandemic's over, is going to be a much more important part of the industry. So uh, we just have to make sure that we're figuring out a way that this can be done equitably and fair so that uh, all, all the stakeholders in this win, the consumer, uh, the restaurateur and the third-party delivery company. And then let's face it too, the third-party delivery companies are doing a service as well by promoting takeout and delivery, and, and they certainly help the industry in that way. So uh, so it's a bit of a love-hate relationship between the restaurateur and the third-party delivery company, but they certainly need each other to make this uh, a successful venture. And I think uh, moving forward, uh, this is going to be uh, more of a staple of, uh, of a restaurant sales. Right? And
1: Anthony, you're at home, and you're you're the guy who's making the order, and you, and you realize that you know they, they have jacked their prices up uh, over here at DoorDash, but I see Uber Eats is still the old price, and, and the uh, skip the dishes have kind of split the difference, so you're the consumer, and yes, of course, you're prepared to pay that convenience surcharge, but you're also the person with the wallet, and you're not going to just start shelling out dough. Uh, they, they are going to be competitive, and I don't think they're all all going to stay in lockstep uh, if, if were that to happen. I think you would see one trying to get a competitive advantage but you're right it's a compu- it's a, a consumer call uh, and um, so you, you're the, ultimately uh, the person who's got the app and is placing the order is ultimately the big decision maker. One more before the break here. Ron in Vancouver good morning Hi Sterling sir uh,
3: a quick question. Uh, who actually owns these uh,
0: app companies? Is there any Canadian ownership, any B.C. or provincial ownership, and where do they invest their money in Canada? That's I a really that's good question. To know.
1: That's a fair question, too, and that's a good one. Uh, Mark, what do you know about that? Are they franchises? Does there is there a Vancouver franchise for DoorDash, or are they run from New York? What's the
2: deal? No, these are, are big international companies. Skip the Dishes is a Canadian-based company out of Winnipeg. Uh, uh, but a lot of these other ones are U.S.-based app companies, very similar to, you know, Uber and 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 uh, uh, apps like that. Mm-hmm. So, so these are big, uh, big companies. They're they're really well financed, and uh, and not not investing
1: heavily in, in the Canadian marketplace, by the sounds of things.
2: No, they are in the sense that uh, they do do a lot of advertising that promotes the whole takeout and delivery from that perspective. But but as far as investing in the restaurant community per se, not really. This is something that uh, uh, is, you know, the restaurants are the tool that helps them deliver their service.
1: Got to leave it there, Mark. Thanks very much. And thanks for all your calls. Good to talk to you again, Mark. Uh, Merry Christmas to you. We'll talk soon in the new year. Sterling Fox in for the vacationing, Mike Smith. Nice to have you along with us this sunny Wednesday morning. A town in Washington State not very far south of the line from British Columbia has been evacuated and a section of I-5 was shut down after a Burlington Northern freight train carrying crude oil derailed in Whatcom County yesterday afternoon. Police, emergency personnel, and a hazmat team responded to the scene near Custer, which is about 15 clicks south of the Peace Arch border crossing, they say that, uh, seven cars derailed tank cars, two of them catching fire and the evacuation orders ensued here to talk about this, uh, from stand earth is Matt Crow, who just conveniently happens to live very close to Custer, Washington. Uh, Matt, good morning. Thanks for joining us.
4: Hey, good morning,
0: Sterling. Thanks so much for having me
1: on. You're a Bellingham guy, right, Matt? I am a Bellingham guy.
0: And, uh, <laughs> bellingham unfortunately we're we're no stranger to some of these disasters going back to well many years but uh had a major pipeline explosion back in ninety
1: nine and uh, we're continuing to see these issues. So uh, for but just to just relate. so where is, again, for those of us who, uh, and we're on the network this morning, Matt, so not everyone listening is just around just above the line in Metro Vancouver. They're across BC. So uh, help us identify. Uh, we know where Bellingham is. It's about a half hour's drive straight down I-5, uh, straight south of the Peace Arch border crossing. Where's Custer? So Custer
0: is basically exactly in the middle. And if you're heading down, as you said, about 15 clicks from the Peace Arch South, you would be in a, in a small town of Custer. There's about 140 people right thereabouts and an elementary school. And uh, the reason this oil train was there is because it was traveling up the tracks and right at Custer is where the tracks turn west. And this oil train was heading out to one of the two refineries at a place called Cherry Point. Sure. The Indian Reservation.
1: Mm -hmm. And we're quite familiar with the Cherry Point refineries. In the summertime, we can see the flames from up here, uh, from certain spots. So uh, now, uh, as my count, right, uh, this is yesterday's news that I'm uh, a story that I'm looking at. So, Matt, what's the story this morning? I have seven cars, two of which caught fire and causing an evacuation of how many people?
0: Sure. I'm I'm not sure about the number of total folks who evacuated, and I'm I'm not sure that the authorities would know either. Um, They put in place an evacuation radius. Uh, Originally, they stated a half mile, then later reported a three-quarter mile radius. And so if you take a look at uh, the standards for evacuation, if there's a puncture and a flame, they definitely do at least a half a mile, um, sometimes a mile or more. And when we saw the same sort of oil train derailment in Castleton, North Dakota, Some years back, Uh, they actually evacuated for five miles uh, downwind because of the toxic plume of smoke. Sure. This derailment, this accident was not as bad as that one, but we definitely uh, had some pictures of the the plume of smoke from my deck uh, going up and turning to the south. And so hopefully nobody up in uh, B.C. got any of that.
1: Not that I'm aware of, uh, and and I have, uh, my son lives in White Rock, so if anything was happening, I would have got a phone call. Said, Dad, it really stinks down here. Something's going on south of the line. I haven't heard anything like that. What have you heard from the railway about all of this, Matt, if anything?
0: So so Burlington Northern has uh, clarified that it is their train, um, and it is their train on their tracks. Um, but there's an investigation undergoing or underway. There are multiple authorities on site taking a look at what may or may not have caused it. But what we've seen in the past, and, and for folks who haven't seen these oil trains, there are, there are 100 cars or more long. They're all the same uh, very heavy tank cars. And so when you're running these types of trains regularly down the tracks, any of the defects in the tracks or the welds or anything else can be uh, you know, heavily impacted and exposed. And so we don't know the cause yet of Mm -hmm. this derailment, but we do know oftentimes derailments like this are caused by a broken track or a broken wheel uh, on one of the cars and, you know... (laughs) Once one of the one part breaks, no hiding can sue, and they start falling off the tracks.
1: Mm-hmm. So now there is an agency, a federal government agency, that will come in and investigate the nature of the crash. Typically, Matt, how long would it take them to go? It was either a broken wheel on a on a tank car, or there was a flaw or a fault in one of the railway uh, lines itself. How long does that determination take usually?
3: Well,
0: you know, we, we could see preliminary determination within weeks, but for a final report, we're talking months or years. So mm. for us, National Transportation Safety Board, and I believe in Canada, it's a transportation safety board. Correct, very similar, right. Similar agency. Um, but I think one of the key things here that folks also need to understand, uh, the former chair of the NTSB, we call it, Debbie Herzman, one of the last things she did as she was leaving office a few years back was hold a multi-day conference with the shippers of crude and ethanol to try to get them to agree to something with the Federal Railroad Administration that would actually improve the safety standards of these tank cars. Mm -hmm. These tank cars, uh, and forgive me for using miles per hour, uh, these tank cars, the old ones they've been using for decades, were not designed for volatile fuels. Um, In fact, they'd puncture at 15 or 16 miles an hour, the old ones. Well, they created a, a new and updated standard, slightly heavier that punctures at about 18 or 19 miles an hour. That's their official puncture velocity. So of course these, you know these trains often move much faster than that. and so it's inherently a dangerous business. And the only reason that we don't have safer tank cars is because if they made them safe, heavy enough to be safe, they wouldn't be able to make a profit off the oil that's in them. So it's really a direct trade-off with oil trains between profit and human safety. Explain puncture.
1: It's the it's the one thing I'm, I'm having difficulty understanding. I, I got the 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 lighter uh, grade of uh, tank uh, punctured uh, more easily at a lower rate of speed. But what do you mean by puncture? A, a stone flying up uh, would cause a a rupture in the skin of the tanker. Is that what you're talking about? Oh heavens, no! But
0: um, we're talking about so the, the way they test for this puncture is they fill up a tank car and they slide it into a 12 inch by 12 inch sort of a, I think they call it an impaler for the test. Okay. And so what you want to think about is as this tank car, which is very full, we're, you know, we're talking almost 300,000 pounds. If it falls off the tracks, anything that is protruding, that is solid could cause a puncture, or it can actually just rip open by flopping onto the tracks at a certain speed. Sure. Okay. We, we know that two of the cars um, were burning. We don't know how many of the seven punctured and we don't yet know how much crude actually spilled. And one of the concerns that we, we really have is it looks like, based on the maps, that this may be uh, directly over an aquifer recharge zone. And there may be very real concerns about benzene contamination, kind of like what we saw with the, uh, the Trans Mountain spill in Abbotsford back in June.
1: So then, uh, do we know if the runoff from the oil spill from the derailment has already entered the local water system? So
0: we do know that the the sort of ditch along the tracks that collected much of the oil, it does connect to some other ditches that flow into California Creek Um The report from the Department of Ecology so far is that none of the crude or the firefighting chemicals, which are also quite toxic, uh, has made it to the creek system yet. Uh, We hope that it doesn't. Uh, It's it's quite cold here today. It's it's below freezing. And so hopefully there's no real flow Mm -hmm. um, happening.
1: Matt Crow is joining us from Bellingham, Washington. Mr. Crow is the director of U.S. oil and gas campaigns for the environmental group Stand Earth. We're talking about the train derailment uh, south of the border, about a 10-minute drive from Peace Arch down in Custer, Washington. A couple of tankers down, a fire, uh, seven cars at least involved. And uh, some callers on the line here, Matt, some Canadians concerned about all of this. Terry in New Westminster, good morning.
4: Well, first off, I'd like to wish you guests a Merry Christmas. My father actually was from Bellingham, Washington, came up here and married my mother, who's a Canadian, of course, and my mother had two Canadian sisters who ended up marrying two American brothers from Bellingham and moving down there. So there's a big family connection with my family. So Merry Christmas. Um, I'd like to find out how many people live in Custer.
1: Uh, Matt said about 150, right, Matt? 150. Uh, Roughly? Okay. Okay, um, Sorry? Yeah. Okay,
0: thank you. Right around the town of Custer, it's about 150, but there's a couple hundred more people in the sort of evacuation zone. Okay, there's an elementary school there as well.
1: So I think we could say less than 500 safely, Terry.
4: But he's okay, so that's good. But um, so now, was this oil coming up to Canada? And another question: Do you have any gas pipelines in the state of Washington? And I remember a few years ago in Quebec they had a huge explosion. Yeah, Lake McAdam. Yeah town, and people were killed, unfortunately. Mm. Now, was that train full of oil as well?
1: Yes, it was. And Matt, you've also said that the train was not coming to Canada. It was going to the refinery at Cherry Point, correct?
0: Yeah, that's right. So the the, the oil in question is the same oil that was uh, in the Lac Mekondique disaster, excuse right. me, but it was traveling north of the I-5 uh, railway, you know, next to I-5, turns west. It was headed for the Phillips 66 refinery. Mm -hmm. There are two refineries at Cherry Point that receive oil trains. Uh, BP has a much larger capacity um, for oil trains than Phillips 66, but this one is confirmed by Phillips and Burlington Northern to have been headed there.
1: And Terry's other question, I think, is a good one. Are there any other pipeline systems p- going through that part of the state already, Matt, that could be delivering the oil underground rather than by train?
0: Oh, absolutely. So uh, I mentioned earlier the spill in Abbotsford from the Trans Mountain Pipeline. That, that spill is at the spur that's called the Puget Sound Pipeline and brings down a couple hundred thousand barrels a day from the Trans Mountain system um, to the refineries, both at Cherry Point here in Whatcom County and March Point in Skagit County. Okay. Um, we also have uh, methane pipelines, you know, natural gas pipelines, as well as finished products pipelines, uh, like the Olympic Pipeline that exploded here in
1: Bellingham was carrying at the time gasoline. Okay. Uh, back to the phones. We're in Surrey next, Catherine. Thank you for waiting. Good morning.
3: Oh good morning.
4: I have been uh, reacting. I I have environmental hypersensitivity disorder, which I'm way off the deep end in the hypersensitivity state. And usually this time of year, it's it's freezing. I I have relief from the fibromyalgia, and. And the reaction to the environment because everything freezes, and it's the best time of year for me. But for all this week, I have been locked up severely, and I'm trying to rack my brain what's doing it you have to be like a detective and usually it's like a beached whale that will do this to me so this is a really interesting story that I'm hearing because I just got the tail end of it now
1: oh so you're figuring that uh, because you're hypersensitive uh, environmentally hypersensitive the 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 nature of the irritation this time around uh, which you you still haven't determined might in fact be this uh, oil spill down in Washington state
4: Well, totally. I'm I'm a mile from Peace Arch. Okay. I live by the ocean.
3: That relieves me.
1: Ah, Okay. Yeah. Well, it's it's entirely possible, Matt. uh, And that, of course, is an exceptional case of a very hypersensitive individual. But have you had complaints? Again, we're talking about uh, 500 or so uh, in the evacuation zone. Have you had any complaints vis-a-vis health concerns from any of those people?
0: Well, first, let me say, Catherine, I'm, I'm super sorry to hear of your condition. I actually have a hypersensitive friend who lives in Blaine um, and who is very close to the refineries as well. Okay. At this time of year, uh, you know, if you had looked at the plume yesterday, you'd see that it went up a, a short distance and then started spreading out horizontally. Because in the winter, we often have conditions that keep pollution near ground level. So whether or not the particular pollution from this train any of that dispersed to the north, I don't know. I, I saw much of it go south. But as you take a look at the refineries and their operations on a day-to-day basis, um, this time of year, you're going to see much more refinery pollution staying closer to the ground, closer to where people live. Uh, and that could also be the ongoing source of a problem. And I, I would love to say, just before perhaps we move to the next caller, like the, the goal here is not to figure out you know which way of moving crude is safer. Right. You know, Pipelines and trains, both leak and derail in various ways, mm-hmm. we really have to be considering how we're going to reduce um, our consumption. And there was a, a report came out from the United Nations this month um, that indicates that if we're going to meet our climate targets, our, our Paris climate commitments, that we have to be reducing production worldwide by about 7.5% every year. So when we talk about you know, one train, uh, or we look at Canada, that's over 400,000 barrels a day annually a production that needs to be reduced to meet these climate goals. And, you know, that's more than goes to the current Trans Mountain Pipeline today.
1: Uh, What about the, uh, have you approached uh, Burlington Northern in the wake of this? And I I know that you said they've, they've very just acknowledged so far that this has taken place and the National Transportation Safety Board will step in and do their due diligence and so on. It'll take a while before we uh, actually determine what, what went wrong. But in terms of approaching the railway and this way of doing business, have you, have you uh, talked to them at all about other remedies?
0: I'm not sure exactly which, but you're
1: considering other remedies, but
0: I'll take you back about five years. And, you know, this is two years after the Lac-Megantic disaster, after we had some much more clear understanding of the risks presented by all the different railways that are running very, very large oil trains. Yep. So we had a, a couple of lawsuits, actually, with the Department of Transportation to try to reduce the speeds at which these trains are allowed to travel and to reduce the number of tank cars that could be carrying crude. In any given, uh, railway. Well, we, we effectively lost that when the federal government stepped in and created new standards, uh, for all the different things that we were concerned about, but they're mediocre. And so, you know, the question of whether or not a railway would voluntarily, um, reduce their profits. Uh, in order to...
1: H- highly, g- highly unlikely, to, to summarize very quickly, highly unlikely. All right. Matt, I have to leave it there. I'm grateful for your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Stand Earth, where do we find you on online?
0: Yeah, you can find us at www.stand.earth. And it just has-
2: How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great, you'll feel relaxed, renewed, and
3: ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at Aruba.com.
1: Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders Welcome back. It's Sterling Fox hitting in for Mike Smith. This, uh, Since I've returned to CKNW a few years ago, this is now the fifth consecutive Christmas that I've had the opportunity to sit in for some of my friends who are taking vacation time. Mike has children, and uh, I've had my turn went the young kids at home, and somebody else has sat in for me, and now it's my pleasure to do the same for Mike as I did for John McComb last year and the few years before it. One of the stories that I have done is, Every season for the past five years is this next story, and I must tell you, I've been looking forward a great deal to sharing it with you again this year. Danny Sitnam is going to share it with me and you. Danny, Danny is the CEO of Helijet Airways, and is back with us again this Christmas to talk about flying toys to kids around BC. Danny, good morning, and welcome back.
4: Hey, good morning, Sterling. Uh, Great to uh, hear your voice once again, and uh, thanks for having me on.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. So now tell us, uh, we'll talk about Helijet and the airways business in a few minutes, but let's cut to the chase and talk about, because you've been doing this now for, is it 15 or 16 years?
4: yeah uh, you know Sterling, this is our sixteenth year, and uh, you know we wanted to make sure we continued the tradition uh, that we started way back in uh, two thousand and five so what
1: did you start then what was the what was the, uh, the what was the impetus back in five to even get this thing going
4: well first of all you know we're, we're pretty proud as an air carrier to operate with the b c emergency health services and all of the paramedics in in providing uh you know, emergency uh, air ambulance services throughout the uh, the province of British Columbia. Mm-hmm. And when we thought about what, what more could we do, uh, you know, we came up with this unique idea of saying, what if we had Santa and we were able to, uh, to deliver Santa and uh, his helper uh, to the children at the hospitals, at selected hospitals? So we, we started back in 2005 and started scratching our heads and we put this idea together to say, let's fly Santa in. We thought it would be novel and unique and it'd be a great thrill to see um, uh, to see Santa coming in via helicopter.
1: Oh, the kids must be just go crazy every year when Santa arrives by chopper. Talk about a spectacular entrance, Dan.
4: Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing, uh, Sterling. It's uh, you know I've, I'm privileged to uh, fly on board uh, uh, every time we've done this, and uh, with the paramedic Santa and the elf, and it's just. Uh, every year, it's just uh, an awesome opportunity to see the children uh, in awe as Santa gets off the aircraft and starts walking down the halls um, with his guests.
1: Absolutely. Now, of course, we have perhaps one of the most peculiar years of, of our combined lifetimes in 2020. So uh, what's the status? What's Dr. Henry and the order with respect to uh, isolation and social distancing and keeping to your bubble and all of that? How is that translated to Santa's activities with the Helijet teams?
4: Yeah, so what we we have to change it up a little bit this year, uh, you know, due to the protocols of yeah. COVID and so forth. So we were respectful of that and and what we did do is we uh we flew Santa into uh the children's. And we didn't go into the hospital, but we've built a, a small video, a virtual a video of Santa. And that's getting distributed and has been distributed as of yesterday to all hospitals, along with a gift that's properly packaged and sanitized and goes out to it with the video. Oh. So at least they get to see Santa coming off his, uh, his uh, helicopter and, uh, and moving towards uh, the hospital's. But we did have to restrict ourselves from uh, coming in. Well, so course. we think the impact is just as... Uh, you know uh, effective uh, and certainly uh, being able to give these children uh, you know an opportunity to have their own video well
1: you know and and you, uh, you you say you travel along and you've done this for every ride that Santa has taken including the one that he didn't get to take this year and you know the last place any family wants to see their little family members spending Christmas is in a hospital and and yeah. this this kind of relief psychological relief as much as anything else works for moms and dads as well as the kids doesn't it dan
4: absolutely no i think uh i think uh you know that connectivity of of at least getting it uh uh to a, a virtual opportunity is as effective and i i think it's just one of the few things that the that the children look forward to and this year i uh, we hope and uh that the impact was just as powerful as a uh, uh, real-life visitation,
1: and I think we should probably tip the hat to a few people here, Mr. Sitnam, because all of those toys that got organized and distributed to age-appropriately to to the children in the hospitals that are uh, typically visited by Santa and virtually visited this year—that's uh, that's a quite a colossal organizational effort all by itself, isn't it?
4: Yeah, no, uh, I have to thank uh, the the many great people at HeliJet uh, in putting it all together. Um, You know, the paramedics, uh, the uh, support staff at the hospitals that did the distribution, uh, you know, and our communications companies, our respective communication companies. So it was a a good collective effort of of making it all happen.
1: And how many children will benefit from, and typically on an annual basis, would benefit from this uh, adventure that HeliJet and Santa collaborate on?
4: Uh, typically, uh, you know, directly about 150 to 200 children Terrific. throughout uh, five hospitals, and uh, and and hopefully many more now that it's virtual, so that because that can get to every child in every room.
1: Interesting. Is there any way anyone listening can help out in terms of getting ready for next year, or, uh, or is, can the public become involved, or is this strictly an internal uh, emergency health uh, slash heli adventure?
4: No, I think uh, many people can get involved. Certainly uh, gifting, uh, you know, uh, an opportunity to bring gifts to the children. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of uh, payload capability on uh, on Santa's helicopter. <laughs> so we can certainly bring more gifts uh, to the children. So something like that, we would welcome uh, the opportunity for uh, the public to uh, uh, bring some gifts over to it. And if they'd like, uh, we can give them coordinates uh, through your office. On how to get a hold of us, right?
1: And if you go to helijet dot com, the first thing you see is Happy Heli-Days. and there's lots of great information on there. And by the way, how's biz, Dan? With uh, you know, we were looking at supplements to the tourism sector yesterday, and we know that uh, that sector, the hardest hit and s- such an enormous contributor to BC's economy every year, is, has taken just a pounding. How's biz for you, people?
4: Well, you know, I have to admit it's been challenging uh, as for uh, most air carriers in Canada. Uh, you know, we're not uh, spared uh, by any means. It's been difficult. I mean, uh, we're, uh, we're uh, following the protocols of uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry and, and the health authorities, and uh, that's what we have to live with right now. We continue to operate our services and and will continue to operate our services between Vancouver and Victoria and Vancouver and Nanaimo, mm-hmm. uh, albeit at a limited uh, uh, service because, uh, you know, travel is restricted to your sure. essential service, but we're getting through it and we have some other areas of opportunity that are outside of that. Since we are an essential uh, service carrier, we're able to uh, to do other things for other clients that are in the essential service to offset sure. this uh,
1: And just just a straight curiosity question: How many air ambulances do we have in British Columbia, Dan?
4: You know, uh, there's quite a few. In so far, the BC Emergency Health Services has uh, numerous fixed wing and helicopters. I would say, uh, you know, in the neighborhood of about uh, uh, probably uh, seven or eight uh, helicopters that are dedicated, uh, and and about uh, ten to twelve fixed wing aircraft uh, that are. throughout the province of BC in yeah. support of emergency services. Well that's
1: reassuring news. I live in New West to fairly close to Royal Columbia and so we see the air ambulances coming and going all the time and each time it's a very impressive thing they do lifting off and taking a, and landing on top of the hospital but each time you see one go out you go gosh there's somebody in real trouble and thank mm. god we thank god we've got an air ambulance to get him back fast.
4: Right, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, Danny, keep up the great work. It's a pleasure to have you back on the radio again uh, to to talk about this wonderful tradition. Here's hoping that 2021, when you and I have a chance to talk about this again, we'll have the big guy in the red suit uh, along uh, for the ride and even bigger smiles of those uh, kids at the
4: hospitals. Uh, Great. Thanks so much, Sterling. Uh, Thank you for uh, having me on and a very Merry Christmas to you and yours.
1: Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith. Welcome back. There's a new study from UBC and the School of Nursing looking at what one long-term care home did right uh, in preparing for COVID-19 and uh, looking at management practices that successfully uh, kept COVID-19 at bay at the start of the pandemic. The lead researcher on the team from the UBC School of Nursing was Dr. Farnaz Hawaii. Uh, Dr. Hawaii Farnaz, welcome back. It's great to talk to you again. It's been a while.
3: Thank you so much.
1: For having me. Daz, tell us a little bit about the homework that you've done and why you selected this particular uh, Richmond facility.
3: So, this facility is actually located in Vancouver, and they are one of the largest facilities in Vancouver with over four hundred staff and two hundred residents and They are within the Vancouver Coastal Health Authority. Um, so we selected this facility because we essentially were working with them in the past uh, you know regarding other other projects and other quality improvement projects that we were doing. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, when, when COVID happened, that, that we sort of uh, faced a barrier in terms of sort of continuing with our projects. And so that created an opportunity to focus on, you know, understanding how they essentially were able to successfully and effectively keep COVID away. And we already knew that they were doing a great job they're They're essentially a gold standard facility.
1: Okay. So what did they do Dr. Hawaii, that other care homes uh, omitted?
3: So I, I think, you know, we've, we've been having sort of interviews and, um, you know, just talking to different people, different stakeholder groups in the facility, and we essentially learned that one of the most important things that essentially contributed to their success Uh, you know, is essentially their proactive planning. And one of the reasons they were able to, you know, proactively plan for the pandemic is because their executive leadership team had experience in terms of, uh, you know, managing other epidemics like SARS in the past. And so as soon as, uh, you know, they heard about COVID-19 in China back in December 2019, January of 2020, they knew what that meant for Canada, and uh-huh. for, for their particular facility. Mm-hmm. So they started actually putting uh, sort of an infection control and infection uh, prevention plan in place for their facility. And that essentially meant like one of the really important things they did was sort of piling up on personal protective equipment. So they had um, additional supplies for like probably like two weeks, three weeks over what um, you know, they had prior to COVID-19, and that essentially saved them. And everybody else was sort of facing a shortage of PPE right. in their long-term care sites. This facility did not. So which they had just-
1: proactively stockpiled leading up to the, uh, the, uh, the, the point of panic where everybody all at once knew that they had to start really uh, uh, getting large supplies and quantities of PPEs.
3: Exactly.
1: So I wanted to ask you: Is this a standalone facility, Dr. Hawaii, or are they part of a, a national group or chain? And have they enjoyed the same success in other markets that they did in Vancouver? If indeed they are,
3: so they. So in our study, we just partnered with this facility, and I mean, they are certainly working with other. Um, uh, facilities like related and affiliated with Vancouver Coastal Health. Mm -hmm. But for for this study, we just worked with this facility and sort of studied their practices and policies and some of the things that they sort of implemented um, as as part of the uh, public order um, to sort of uh, keep COVID-19 away.
1: And, and and my question was: Do they have other um, similar facilities in other provinces, or indeed other parts of British Columbia? Or is- so they
3: are a standalone oh, facility. They are
1: okay. All right. So then, so then it's it's uh, and and from a, a research point of view, it, it's it's an, an even easier sort of self-contained single unit to isolate, right? Yes. So what other practices? And perhaps sense of anticipation, did they demonstrate that maybe we should be more keen in terms of looking for clues in the future?
3: So one of the other leadership competencies that we think sort of contributed to their success is essentially this uh, prioritization of safety. To the leadership team of this facility, safety was over and above everything else their decisions you know were not driven by finances and budget obviously they were influenced by by uh financial um you know means and access to resources but they had this emphasis and prioritization of safety in their facility that i think was really important to their success in terms of responding to um you know the pandemic.
1: Mm-hmm. And it uh, certainly sounds like uh, in, in terms of safety and awareness, it was uh, not just a management leadership thing. They made sure that everybody on staff
3: bought in. Absolutely. I mean, they they essentially role models, the executive leadership team role models the way for their staff. They 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 led by example. And that certainly sort of created a culture among their staff to actually also you know, uphold some of those same um, safety practices and policies and standards.
1: So they were able to keep COVID-19 out of this long-term care facility. And obviously the stresses of, of accomplishing that would be complicated or compounded upon by the lack of visitors and those staff members not only being required to do their jobs, but also in many ways being sort of surrogates for family.
3: Absolutely. They they acted. They the staff actually ended up becoming family members of these residents, this vulnerable population who was actually living at the facility and did not have access to any visitors or their family members and they sort of stepped in to provide some of the sort of emotional and psychosocial needs sure. of this population. And you know, one of the really interesting things that we actually found, which is probably an area for improvement is, you know, just all because we've actually found that staff, um, you know, as a result of all of these infection control uh, prevention and practices, infection control and prevention practices and policies, and also because of the strict visitation policies, they actually experienced or encountered this rise in their level of workload because as I explained earlier on top of everything else that they were doing you know prior to COVID-19 now they had to sort of engage in other activities they needed to spend time with the residents talk to them make sure that they have that you know social they have that sense of social connection and you know the putting on uh, PPEs taking them out taking them off All of that is really time-consuming. And so one of the things that we found would be probably an area for improvement would be essentially just being cognizant and doing something about staff workload in in, in these facilities.
1: That's a great study, and it's a nice positive story in the midst of some tough times, Dr. Hawaii. Thank you, Naz, for joining us and, and bringing us up to speed on this. It's very encouraging stuff. And Merry Christmas to you.
3: Same to you. Thank you so much for having me.